Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer before we uh, come to his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this this morning and we ask that you would uh, open up your word to us and help us to understand what we're reading. We pray that you would speak to our individual hearts and minds, that we would all come away from this time having been fed and nourished and uh, our spirits stirred and provoked into uh, greater service to you. Lord, I ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon my mouth as I speak. I might speak with clarity. And uh, I pray, Lord, your blessing upon our ears that we might be able to hear with ears of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you open up your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 2? We're going to be doing the complete chapter, Judges 2, verses 1 to 23. Last time we saw how um, Israel continued their conquest of the land, but that conquest was uh, marred by compromise and uh, the compromise would lead to corruption and the corruption. Sorry, <clears throat> judges, which chapter? Oh, Judges okay. chapter two. Two. Yep, thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we saw, we saw that last time in Judges chapter one, that uh, Israel continued their conquest of the land, but the land, but the conquest uh, was marred by compromise. They didn't defeat all of the Canaanites, and so that compromise led to corruption, and that corruption will eventually lead to death. And so we pick things up in chapter two with an appearance of the angel of the Lord. So reading verses one to five. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And then they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So this is the first of three confrontations in the book of Judges between God and Israel. We know that this is not just the angel of the Lord. We know that the, uh, an angel like a regular angel, we know that this is the Lord because he talks about the covenant that was made between him and the children of Israel. And that and the covenant is between God and Israel. So this, clearly this is not just an angel, it is God. There is a further confrontation between God and Israel in Judges 6 and another one in Judges 10. And these three confrontations all serve to show that Israel uh, failed to take that Israel's failure to take the whole of the land of Canaan is not due to God's unfaithfulness because God kept the terms of the covenant, but was due to Israel's disobedience. And if ever we find failure and defeat in our lives, it is always due to our disobedience, not to God's unfaithfulness. God is always faithful totally dependable and truly reliable. And this is also the first of three appearances 
of the angel of the Lord in the book of Judges. There is here in Judges 2, there's another one in Judges 6 with the call of Gideon and another one in Judges chapter 13 where the angel of the Lord comes to announce the birth of Samson to his mother. Now because this is not just the angel of the Lord but it is an appearance of God, this is what's called in theological terms a theophany, a theophany and that's a visible manifestation of God to man. And uh, there are those who believe that this visible manifestation of God to man is actually the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the person that we know as Jesus Christ. Although to refer to this as an appearance of Jesus Christ is inaccurate because Jesus Christ is the identity of the second person of the Godhead after his incarnation. And this is before the incarnation. When Jesus was conceived in Mary, the second person of the Godhead took on human flesh. Humanity was added to his deity. Prior to his conception, the son was 100% divine. After his conception, the son was 100% divine and 100% human. That is why Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator between God and men because he can fully identify with God and he can fully identify with men. But this is prior to the incarnation, so this is a theophany. Some people, because they believe this is Jesus Christ, refer to this as a Christophany. And that is a, a manifestation of the second person of the Godhead. But usually the term Christophany refers to a manifestation after Jesus was ascended to heaven. So, yes, you can call this a theophany, you can call this a Christophany. Um, some people might want to use the term a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, but I feel as if that term is a bit cumbersome, if I'm completely honest with you. What is important to know that is that this is God, but he's not appearing in human form. Remember, angels appear many times within the uh, scriptural narrative, but Angels, though they might look like men when they're manifested on earth, they are not human. And here we see a manifestation of God. And although he might look like a man, he is not a man. He is not human. Anyway, do with that what you will. I guess you already knew that. But uh, it's good to bring clarity to these things. And uh, But what is interesting to me is the last time we encountered the angel of the Lord in Scripture was way back at the beginning of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 5. There he appeared as the commander of the Lord's army. And what's interesting to note is where the angel of the Lord appeared in Joshua 5 was near Gilgal. Gilgal was the headquarters of the military operation going into the Promised Land, and that's where God last appeared to them. Now, if you were to reread verse, the first part of verse 1, it says... Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. For Israel, it had been approximately 50 years since the Lord had last appeared to them. For God, it was just a moment ago. Israel had to walk through history to get to this place. And it's as if God steps through time to go from Gilgal to Bochim. And uh, I just thought that was very interesting. But the angel of the Lord moves geographically from Gilgal to Bochim to meet with Israel. 
And this is because Israel has moved spiritually away from the Lord. The Lord moves geographically to be with Israel because Israel has moved spiritually away from the Lord. In Joshua 5, Israel were in a place of obedience. They'd been circumcised. They'd observed the Passover. They were prepared to fight for the Lord. By the time we get to Judges chapter 2, Israel were in a place of disobedience. They'd compromised in their fighting. They'd not driven out the people of the land and they'd begun to be corrupted by the Canaanites. And so the angel of the Lord appears to address the matter and he wastes no time calling Israel to account. He says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never make break my covenant with you. So he states very clearly, I'm the one who delivered you from Egypt. I'm the one that brought you into the land. I will never break my covenant. I have been completely dependable. I have said I have done exactly what I said I would do. The Lord had kept his word and he has been faithful to his side of the covenant with Israel. And the Lord is steadfast. The Lord is reliable. He is unmovable. He is dependable. And you can trust your life into his hands and he will not let you get down. You can always count on the Lord. But what you can't do is you can't always count on Israel and you can't always count upon man and you can't count upon yourself. We're the ones who always shift and move. And so he goes on in verse two. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars. So there was two things he said. You are... <laughs> You are not to have a covenant with the people in the land. You're not to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. I, they have not kept those two requirements. They have made covenants with the Canaanites and they have allowed the Canaanite altars to remain. And we're going to see that this act of disobedience is going to be the making of the demise of Israel. The fact that they make covenants with the Canaanites, the fact that they have allowed their altars to remain, or fundamentally, they have not kept the terms of the covenant with the Lord. And so here comes the killer question. Why have you done this? You know, there is never a good reason for disobedience. And really, there was no answer that Israel could give to this question. Why have you done this? But this is the same technique the Lord used in the Garden of Eden when he asks Adam a question as well. Where are you? The Lord always asks a question. And uh, why does the Lord ask a question? Well, it's for three reasons. First, to bring conviction so that you recognise that what you have done is wrong. Second, to provoke a confession so you come to the Lord in and, and, and repentance. And then third, to provide an opportunity to repent, for there to be a restoration in a relationship. God um, does not send his people on a guilt trip. He doesn't ask a question to make them feel bad about themselves. We are more than able to do this ourselves. And if not us, then the devil is a past master at trapping us in guilt. The Lord always wants to lead us out of our sin and disobedience to a place of relationship, to a place of freedom, to a place of obedience and love. Remember Luke 19 verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He is seeking out people. He's wanting to save people. He's not wanting to condemn. Let me show you a PowerPoint here. 
So here we have the place of fellowship, the place of relationship with God. And this is a place of blessing. This is a place of freedom. This is a place of obedience and love. Um, and that is where God wants us to be, in that place of obedience and safety and blessing. But the moment that we are disobedient, the moment that we stray from the presence of the Lord and start to live how we want to, not keeping the terms of the covenant, what we do is we find ourselves out of that place of safety, out of that place of obedience, um, out of that place of blessing in a place of danger and a place that will bring cursing into our life. When we move out of God's presence, we move away from that place of relationship and love to a place of loneliness and hurt. And so when the angel of the Lord is here confronting Israel, he's trying to draw them back to a place of security and blessing. And so we read in verse three, therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So this is what God has determined to do. I am not going to drive out these Canaanites before you. I'm going to let them to remain and they're going to be thorns in your side. And it's that word thorns that stands out to me there. Some of you in your translations might have that word thorns in italics, italics, which suggests that it's not there in the original text. But the term, but this this uh, verse here that the angel of the Lord is referring to is a reference back to Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, where we're told, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And that, is, that word thorns there is very much in the original text. And so what is being referred to here in verse three of Judges two is back to this verse here. So it's very much the emphasis and the language used by the angel of the Lord, I think, is designed to evoke a recollection of the fall in Eden. You remember, um, just as Adam's disobedience resulted in a curse and that curse was that he had to wrestle with thorns and thistles. So Israel's disobedience will result in a curse and they'll have to wrestle with thorns again, but thorns in their sides. And it might be that this word curse seems like a strong word to you, but it's exactly what Israel signed up for. When they made the covenant with the Lord, the tribes of Israel were split into two camps. One half stood on Mount Gerizim, one half stood on Mount Ebal. Those on Mount Gerizim pronounced blessings for obedience and those who stood on Mount Ebal pronounced curses for disobedience. So God wanted to pour blessings into the life of Israel. But if they persisted in disobedience, then there would be curses that would come upon them. And in uh, Leviticus chapter 26, we are told that these curses wouldn't all happen at one time, but they would come in a progressive way through a process of five cycles. A cycle of discipline would fall upon Israel and they'd endure hardship and difficulty. 
and that would bring them to a place of distress and hopefully to a place of repentance and restore them to the Lord. But if not, then a second cycle, seven times worse, would come upon Israel and then progressively they would get worse. By the time you get to the fourth cycle of discipline, that would involve enemy occupation. So when we look at the life of Jesus, Israel was clearly under the fourth cycle because they were under enemy occupation by the Romans. And the fifth cycle would be that they would be cast out of the land and dispersed among the nations, which happened twice. It happened in the first time um, when Babylon invaded and threw the Israelites out of the land. And of course, it happened a second time, happened a second time in AD 70 when Israel was cast out of the land under the Romans. So these these curses would fall uh, in a progressive nature. But if Israel repented and turned back to the Lord, the blessings would all come back and flow back into Israel in one instant outpouring. It says in Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. The hymn writer uh, took that and rewrote it and said that the Lord is uh, slow to anger and swift to bless. And isn't that just like God? He takes five cycles to, to, to show his anger slowly appearing, but he is swift to bless. His blessing falls in a moment. Now, this first cycle of discipline here would involve sickness falling upon the people. But more notably, a raiding, par raiding parties would come in, would steal crops, which would mean a loss of income, and that the Israelites would find themselves in a place of defeat in battle. And there would be an oppression from an invading force, a loss of personal freedom. That is what would happen in the first cycle. And this is what we will see happen time and time again in Israel's history. They fall foul of this first cycle of discipline. Raiding parties will come in, steal their crops. They'll be under oppression, under oppression, having to pay tribute to these raiding parties and they would be defeated in battle. Now, the response of uh, the people towards the words of the angel of the Lord is given in verses four and five. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And when they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This, there is a genuine anguish and sorrow at the word of the angel of the Lord. And Bokim means weepers. And so we see here that they are weeping real tears. They're in genuine anguish for what they've done. But I've got to ask the question, are they genuinely repentant or are they just mourning that they're in this situation are they in a place of remorse because their actions have brought this um, uh, point of cursing upon their lives so you can be in anguish and you can cry tears but your heart can be unchanged and honestly I don't really know where Israel are at this moment in time are they genuinely sorry or is it just uh, they're sorry for what they, the situation they find themselves in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 
And we don't know whether this is godly sorrow or whether it's the sorrow of the world. If this is godly sorrow, it is fleeting because Israel returns to its sin very quickly. If this is worldly sorrow, then the sacrifices they are giving to appease God do not please God. They're not so much interested in relationship, they're more interested in avoiding trouble. And uh, children can be like this, can't they? Um, they can be disobedient, then they are corrected, and they're told the consequences and disciplined. And then this is followed with tears, and then they do the right thing. But it's not necessarily because of a change of heart. The tears are because they got caught and because they were smacked. And the right conduct is there just to appease mummy and daddy and to get them out of trouble. The Lord isn't looking for that type of superficial external response. The Lord is always looking at the heart. He's looking for a humility. He's looking for a purity. He's looking for a desire to know him. And when he brings correction, when he brings discipline, it is designed to bring a person or a people or a nation into a place of distress, into a place of godly sorrow. And that distress, that godly sorrow should lead to repentance and then repentance leads to relationship because that is what God really wants, relationship. OK, then. Verse six. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the inheritance of timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. So here we see uh, another retelling of the death of Joshua. When Moses died, he left a successor, namely Joshua. But when Joshua died, he left no successor. There was no other person to take on the national leadership. Now in the situation of a local church fellowship, when it comes time for a pastor to step down, to move on, or he dies, the sign of a good pastor is that he has prepared a successor. A shepherd should not leave the sheep without another shepherd to care for them. Does that mean that this Joshua was not a good leader? I don't think so at all. Joshua, first and foremost, was not a shepherd. He was a general. He was a military leader tasked by God to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, to subdue the people and take possession of the land, then to distribute the land between the tribes. And he was faithful in all that God commanded him to do. He was not directed by the Lord to appoint a successor, but Moses was directed by the Lord to appoint a successor. God had a different plan for life after Joshua. And why did the Lord not appoint a successor after Joshua? Because the Lord wanted Israel to look directly to him, not to a national leader. He wanted Israel to look to the Lord and have a relationship directly with him and not through a third party. And the danger we are all inclined toward is that we look to a man and not to God. We look to the person up front instead of looking to, to him. And a good leader will always point towards Jesus and will always say, you need to go to him. 
Why do people pour out adulation to pop stars and film stars? Why is the cinema filled with superheroes? Why is the world looking for some political figure to get us out of the social, moral and financial mess we're in? Because we all have a tendency to look toward men and not God. The Lord left Israel without a national leader so they would look to him, not to a man or their own human strength. However, we read in verse 10, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. The death of Israel, sorry, the death of Joshua was previously recorded in Joshua chapter 24. And it is mentioned again here in light of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Throughout the life of Joshua, Israel served the Lord. Throughout the life of the elders who experienced the conquest of Canaan, Israel served the Lord. Then came another generation, and this generation failed to serve the Lord. And the question has got to be asked, why did this generation fail to serve the Lord? Is there something that we can learn as to why a successive generation doesn't serve the Lord? Well, we're told there, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done. So this is not because their parents did not teach them about the Lord, or did not instruct them about the law of Moses, or did not tell them about the Exodus, the Red Sea, or the victories in Canaan. It's because they did not know the Lord, nor the work he had done. That word know is the Hebrew word yadea. And it is the same word used in Genesis where it says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Adam knew his wife in a personal, intimate way that no other person knew. And Israel failed to have that unique, personal, intimate knowledge of God. They may have continued to offer sacrifices at Shiloh. They may have continued observing the feast, that, but it became religion based on tradition, not worship based on relationship. And we must always be striving to have that personal, intimate knowledge and relationship with God. So it is a reality, not a religion. It is truth, not tradition. You know, a Christian is not someone who goes to church, celebrates Christmas and Easter, partakes of communion and claps their hands as they sing the songs, although that should be part of what they do. Um, well, clapping's optional. But uh, um, a Christian is someone who has a unique and personal and intimate knowledge of God. Do you have that unique, personal and intimate knowledge of God? Are you spending time with him where you're getting a sense of his presence in your life, a sense of his leading? Or is your knowledge of God always second hand because of what other people are saying and communicating to you about him? That was the danger. And that's what's happened to Israel. Their knowledge of God started to become second hand and not first hand. There was a second reason that uh, is that this other generation arose without knowing the Lord. And that was because they allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land. They allowed their waters. They allowed their pagan worship. And this was a temptation and a snare to Israel. And uh, you may be of the generation of Joshua. You may be of the generation of the elders. But we have another generation following us 
our children. And the two best things you can do to help your children is preach, the gospel, preach them the gospel and endeavour to lead them to Christ so they have a personal knowledge of Christ. And the second thing you can do is do not let Canaan get a foothold in their life. The Canaanites got a foothold in the life of Israel through their altars and pagan worship. And we've got to guard our children to make sure Canaan doesn't get a foothold in their life. Guard them from the world. Guard what they watch on television. Guard what they do on the internet. Guard their computers and their phones. Guard their friendship groups. As John said, little children, keep yourself from idols. We need to keep our little children from idols. When a person has a personal relationship with the Lord, it will always become evident in their conduct. And when a person does not have a personal relationship with the Lord, that too will become evident in their conduct. I remember um, when Abby and I were courting, uh, I would sometimes go down to Portsmouth to visit her for the weekend. And sometimes she would come up to Kent and visit me for the weekend. And there was one weekend where we hadn't seen each other for a while. And um, I think it was at the beginning of our relationship, you know. And you were hoping I was going to come up on a Friday, but I didn't turn up. And then you were hoping I was going to turn up on the Saturday and I didn't turn up on the Saturday. And it got to the Sunday morning and I wasn't there at the start of church. And it was a time when your church was having a meal, a fellowship meal. And so the meeting was over and the meal started. And there I turned up around about one o'clock, something like that, just as the meal had started. And people were always wondering what's going on between Matt and Abby. Is, is, it, is it real or is it just flirting or whatever? And I turned up at the door and Abby had been waiting for me for a couple of days and she saw me there and no word of a doubt, she ran from one end of the church to the other and gave me a whopping great big hug. And there was no doubt to any mind within the whole of that church what was in her heart. What was in her heart was shown in her conduct. And what is in our hearts will be shown in what we do and how we behave as well. And the condition of Israel's heart is clearly evident here. They don't have a heart for the Lord. Let's read verses 11, and 13, 11 to 13. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. They didn't run to embrace the Lord. They ran to embrace Baal and Ashtoreth. And that shows you that their heart had departed from God. How could Israel's heart turn so quickly from worshipping the Lord, who had delivered them from Egypt, who'd sustained them through the wilderness, who'd brought them into the promised land. Well, I think there were three steps that uh, they took. The first was the step of doubt. The second was a doorway. And the third was drawing. Doubt. Israel was a nation of shepherds and herdsmen. But Canaan was a nation of farmers. And when Israel came into Canaan, um, these experienced Canaanite farmers attributed the fertility of the land to Baal. 
So the question arose in their minds, could the God of the wilderness, who looked after our flocks, bring fertility in the promised land? Or did they need to honour Baal as well? And so an intense battle for the hearts of minds of Israel began and doubt started to sow in their thinking. Now when it comes to the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, it involved animal sacrifices, which was very similar to what Israel did, but it also involved ritual sex. Um, there was uh, 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 temple prostitutes that you would engage in sexual activity with, and that procreative procreative act somehow stimulated the gods to bring fertility uh, in the farmland, or so it was thought. Um, but what is interesting with Baal and Ashtoreth worship is you did not need to reject the worship of Jehovah to embrace Baal and Ashtoreth in the Baal worshippers' minds. So there could be a syncretism between Baalism and worshipping Jehovah in the mind of the Canaanites. So they opened up a doorway and said, you can join us in our worship. You can join us in our sacrifices. You and can enjoy us, join us in our sex. And if you think this generation that did not know the Lord, a doorway, there was a doorway to maintaining the traditions of the past, but also we could embrace this new religion of the Canaanites too. And then I think the third thing that happened was there was a drawing, a lure. Israel, of course, operated on an agricultural economy, i.e. they needed to have crops to be able to survive. That was the basis of their finances. And a good harvest meant a good standard of living. If they had a good harvest, they would have a good standard of living. But also a good harvest meant a good economy. They had lots of money. And if a good harvest could be secured by ritual sex, then you've got a really strong draw card there. A draw card of high living, lots of money and sex. And who doesn't want money? Who doesn't want sex? And who doesn't want the high life? And that was what was being offered by Baal and Ashtoreth worship. You've got a young generation having been brought up on Mosaic law, a strict sex life, you, you give portion of your income to the Lord and you have a chaste lifestyle. And in contrast, they're being lured away by the promise of sex, money and the high life. The temporary pleasures of this world were more appealing than the eternal rewards of a righteous life. And it calls to mind James 1 verses 14 and 15, where it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. They were drawn away by their own desires. They were enticed by that which seemed good, and uh, not knowing that sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The devil employs exactly the same tactics today, by the way. He will tempt you with sex. He will tempt you with money. And he'll tempt you with the high life of something better. That's why it says in Proverbs uh, 4 verse 23, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. We need to guard our hearts from the temptation that the enemy and the world presents to us. Because it looks good on the outside, but when it is full grown, it leads 
to death. And let's be clear, we need to only guard our hearts, but the hearts of our children as well. We need to guard their lives because the enemy will draw them away and entice them with things too. We need to pray for our young ones, that they um, that they'll be protected. Because we live in a world with all manner of different temptations through the internet, through television, through promiscuity and drugs and so forth. There is a lot of things there. And let's be clear, sin is enjoyable. Sin is fun. No doubt it leads to death when it is full grown, but before that is full grown, it is enjoyable. Did you know that sin goes through seasons? There are different seasons of sin. In Hebrews 11, uh, verses 24 and 25, it says, By faith Moses, when he, came, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So it talks about there a season of sin. And you've got the springtime of sin when temptation comes and the, and the allure of sin begins. It's sweet. It's tantalising. It looks so good. And you, all you can hear is the sirens calling, but you can't see the rocks that are going to spell destruction. Then you've got the summer season of sin, when sin is in full force, in full motion, and you are deep in exploiting it and enjoying it to the max. And then it goes into the autumn, the, when the after effects are starting to be experienced. You're starting to feel the consequences of sin, and it hasn't proven to be as long lasting or as beneficial as you first thought. And then you've got the winter of sin, when sin has left you. And death has gripped you. I was, um, excuse me. I was watching something yesterday about Freddie Mercury, uh, the lead singer of Queen. And uh, he was tempted away through the lures of, of sin, um, a very much a, an active sex life. And when you get to the uh, mid to late 70s and early 80s, he was in the summer season of sin, exploit, exploring all the pleasures and the high life of sin that it could offer. But by the time you get to the end of the 80s, it was in the autumn period where the after effects of sin he was experiencing as he recognised he was diagnosed with AIDS as a result of his lifestyle. And then by the time we get to the early 90s, of course, the winter season of sin gripped him and he died. And I just thought that was a very clear picture of the way that sin can be very tempting at the beginning. You can enjoy it for a time, but eventually it brings death. And this is where Israel was. They were in the spring season, if you like, of sin. They were being drawn in to this world. It was tempting and it was alluring. And what was the law to do with a people like this? Well, let's read verses 14 and 15. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. This is the first cycle of discipline that we had uh, spoken of before. Um, Raiding parties from neighbouring nations would come into a tribal territory. They would take the crops 
uh, Israel had spent the whole year cultivating and Israel would lose in battle where before under the Lord they had only ever known victory, of course. And instead of uh, the, uh, the Canaanites paying tribute to them, they would end up paying tribute to the Canaanites. So this was the first cycle of discipline that, uh, that they found themselves in. And this would continue until they were greatly distressed. That phrase there at the end of verse 15, they were greatly distressed. And uh, as I said before, the fifth cycle of discipline would lead to dispersion, but they never got to that place because that first cycle would bring them to a place of distress and that distress would cause, cause them to cry out to the Lord and the Lord would raise up a deliverer to help to do, save them from these raiding parties. We read there in verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. These judges were saviours. These uh, judges were deliverers. They would come, they would fight the uh, raiding parties and cause them to restore their land and they would get to a place um, of safety again. Now, these judges, which we will see as we go through the book of Judges, were usually a tribal leader of some sort, a regional leader, but they were anointed by God. And they were anointed by God for a twofold purpose. It was an external purpose and an internal purpose. The external purpose was to deliver them from an outside threat, to act in military affairs to save them from these raiding parties. But there was also an internal purpose, to judge and to govern on eternal affairs, to act in civil affairs, if you like. So they were to be a military leader, but to be a civil leader as well. But uh, they would only live for a season. And um, after that, Israel were again left in a situation without a leader, and instead of turning to the Lord, they would invariably descend back into that pattern of sin and the first cycle of discipline would start again. So we read in verses 17 to 19, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the prostitute with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And, you know, you would have hoped that having been in distress and having cried out to the Lord, that and he having raised up a judge to deliver the people, common sense would prevail and people would remain uh, faithful to the Lord. But you don't have to live very long to know that people are stupid. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are all like that. People return to their sin like a dog returns to his vomit. We are all fools repeating our folly, although we know better. And just as Israel goes back to their sin, if we're honest, we go back to our sin as well. 
And God sometimes allows distress in our lives so that we cry out to him. But our deliverer is not a judge. Our deliverer is Jesus Christ. So this cycle of oppression and deliverance, you could have called it a cycle of sin, starts off with the relationship with the Lord, where Israel serves the Lord. Then it Israel falls into a place of disobedience where they forsake the Lord and they serve the Baals and Ashtoreth and so forth. They go the way of the Canaanite. So the Lord comes in with discipline, those cycles of discipline that I told you about, and Israel finds itself oppressed. And from that place of oppression and discipline, they cry out to the Lord and uh, they cry out to the Lord from the distress and the Lord raises up a deliverer and uh, or a judge and the Lord uh, rescues them. So they go back to a place of relationship. But then from that place of relationship, they go back to disobedience, disobedience to discipline, discipline to distress, to deliverer. And it goes round and round and round this cycle. And this is really the structure of the book of uh, Judges. We are in chapter two, where it's uh, Israel post Joshua. And we, we're starting to learn about this pattern of compromise and decline. And if we've got this pattern of compromise and decline in our lives, so in our minds, then we'll understand what is happening as we go further into the book. And what we see when we get to the main body of the book, chapters 3 to 16, we see these cycles of oppression and deliverance in, in operation. And there are actually seven cycles. They go in seven revolutions. They are first oppressed by the Mesopotamians. Then the Moabites, then the Philistines, then the Canaanites, then the Midianites, then the Ammonites and then the Philistines. And you can see there uh, by those oppressors, the names of the deliverers that God raises up, the names of the uh, judges. And then the final section of the book is really, I guess, what we call appendixes, appendices. Um, we get the migration of Dan. They move from their territory, which they lose completely to the Canaanites up to a northern territory and then the book ends with a big civil war, which almost annihilates Benjamin. And then, of course, after Judges, we go into the book of Ruth. And Ruth is, serves in many ways as an appendix to the book of Judges, because it's a story that happens within this period of history. But I want to call you back to uh, verse 19. And it says there, and it came to pass when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their father, fathers by following after other gods. As Israel went round this cycle of sin seven times, with each successive cycle, whenever Israel re-entered into disobedience and sin, it was worse than the time before. They never fully got back to those, that high point of relationship with God. And every time they went into disobedience, their depravity and their corruption was even greater. And so despite repeated deliverance, there was an inexorable decline in Israel. Each judge that God raised up was less righteous than the previous judge. And his corruption descended into civil war and the nation was in danger of imploding by the time we get to the end of the book. And so the last few verses. Then the angel of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation was transgressed my because this nation has transgressed my covenant, 
I've lost my place. I'm going to start again. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation was tra has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So God's anger burns against Israel and burns against their sin. And let's be in no doubt, God does not like sin. He hates sin and his anger burns against sin. And it is not something that we should treat lightly in our lives at all. We can see this cycle of sin here and the distress and the problems that it brings upon Israel. And sin will bring distress and problems into our lives as well. Psalm 90.11 says, who knows the power of your anger? Do you want to feel the anger of the Lord in your life? Do you want to know that? God began to distance himself from his people. Look there again. It says, um, because this nation has transgressed my covenant. He used to call them my nation. Now he's calling them this nation. He's starting to distance himself from the people. And if we continue in our sin, we'll find ourselves in a place of distance from the Lord. You know, the Lord has fought for Israel to drive out the Canaanites. Now Israel wanted the Canaanite nations around them. And so what happened? The Lord gave them over to their desires and he allowed Israel to leave his presence, to leave his safety, to leave his love, knowing it would end in bondage, pain and death. And that should be a sobering warning to us that if we want to sin, if we want to pursue the world, God will give us over to our desires. He will allow us to leave his presence to leave his safety, to leave his love. But it will end in bondage, it will end in pain, and it will end in death. If you set your heart on sin, um, it will come at a tremendous price. But let's praise God that when we come to him in sincere repentance and faith, he welcomes us back with open arms. He pours all his love, all of his blessing into our lives. He brings us to a place of security. And that is why Jesus died upon the cross. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to know the fullness of joy. He wants us to experience all the safety and blessings that he can provide. Let's not abandon that. Let's appreciate all that we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we have um, looked into your word today. We thank you for these sobering lessons. And I pray that all those words that uh, come from you would remain in our hearts and minds. All those words that come from man, they would fall to the ground and die. Help us to be sober in our assessment of our relationship with you, knowing that you are a merciful and gracious God who delights to forgive sin and longs to have fellowship with us. Amen. Amen.